When you think of data science, Jupyter Notebooks and associated tools probably come to mind, but I want to broaden your tool set a bit and encourage you to look around at other tools that are literally at your fingertips, the terminal and the shell command line tools. On this episode, you'll meet Joran Janssen, who wrote the book, Data Science on the Command Line. And there are a bunch of fun and useful small utilities that will make your life simpler that you can run immediately in the terminal. For example, you can query a CSV file with SQL right on the command line. That and much more on this episode, 392 of Talk Python to Me, recorded November 28th, 2022. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy, and follow the podcast using at TalkPython, both on bostodon.org. Be careful with impersonating accounts on other instances. There are many. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at talkpython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is sponsored by Sentry. Don't let those errors go unnoticed. Use Sentry. Get started at talkpython.fm slash Sentry. And it's brought to you by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Check them out at talkpython.fm slash Founders Hub to get early support for your startup. Transcripts for this episode are sponsored by Assembly AI, the API platform for state-of-the-art AI models that automatically transcribe and understand audio data at a large scale. To learn more, visit talkpython.fm slash assemblyai. Yarun, welcome to Talk Python to me. Hey, thank you. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. I saw your book and the title was Data Science at the Command Line. I thought, okay, that's different. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about data science tools and Jupyter Labs, amazing. And like, if you look over the fence, like our studio and those kinds of things. And yet so much of what we can kind of do and orchestrate and, and create as a building block happens in the terminal and bringing some of these data science ideas and some of these concepts from the terminal to support data scientists, I think is a really cool idea. So we're going to have a great time talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love to talk about this. And yeah, you're right. It's I still find it an, an interesting juxtaposition of these two terms, data science and the command line, one being, well, nowadays, let's say 10 years old, at least the term is, and the other one, uh, the command line is over 50 years old. The command line is, it's ancient in computer terms, right? It's one of the absolute very first ways of interacting with computers. You've got cards where you programmed on paper, and then you had the shell, right? Right after that. Exactly. Before there were any screens, really. Yeah. When we all, when computers were green, they were all green. It was amazing. So I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into that and it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I just want to also put out there for people who are like, but I'm not a data scientist. So should I check out? I actually think there's a ton of cool ideas in there from just for people who do all sorts of Python and other types of programming. It's not just data scientists, right? No, absolutely. And, and I mean, even, I mean, I don't really care much for titles, but even when you're an engineer or a developer, you would be surprised if you really think about how much data you actually work with. I mean, just log files on a server. Yeah. Th those, that's data too. So there are still a lot of opportunities to use the command line, even if you, well, 
uh, don't consider yourself to be a data scientist per se. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, let's start with your story. How do you get into programming and data science and Python? I know you do Python and R and some other things. So how do you get into uh, programming? Yeah, it actually started when I was about 12 years old. We got this uh, this old computer. It was already old by then, two two eighty six. And um, I opened up this uh, this program. I wanted to to write a story, and I was just typing. I was journaling. Then I got all these error messages. Turns out the uh, the program that I had opened was QBasic, and it didn't really like <laughs> what I had to say. <laughs> and then I I started reading the help, and uh, and then I realized like, hey, I can make this computer do things. It just needs a particular language. And that's really how I got into programming. Yeah, and then, of course, there's a whole range of programming languages that then come by. Uh, Visual Basic at a certain point, Pascal, Java, C. Uh, and you know what? I've forgotten most of it. So this doesn't. if this sounds intimidating, <laughs> then please don't <laughs> worry. But yeah, nowadays, Python plays a big role in my professional career. Also R. Right, and those two happen to be the the most popular programming languages for doing data science, and uh, and JavaScript. Obviously, when you're doing some more front end work, yeah, JavaScript finds its ways into all these little cracks. You're like, why JavaScript? Come on! I was just looking yeah. at at programmable dynamic DNS as a service, and the way you Whoa. program it is you. I know, and you jam in little bits of JavaScript to make a decision on how to like route a DNS query. I'm like JavaScript. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm now using Elevendy, which is oh, yeah, a, static, yeah, yeah. a static site generator. And ironically enough, it uses JavaScript. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've heard really good things about Elevendy, and I just started using Hugo, which is also a static site generator, but that one's written in Go. And I yeah. just decided I care about writing in Markdown, and I want a static site, and I don't care long as I run a command on the terminal, actually, I want to tell a story a little bit about sort of yeah. coordinating over over the shell for some of these static site things. But I, I decided I don't care if it's the guts of it are in a language that I can program. It's a tool. If it's a good tool for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it. Okay, so that's how you got into to programming. How about day to day? What are you doing these days? Yeah, so at this very moment, as we're recording this, I have my own company called Data Science Workshops, where I give uh, training at companies to to uh, developers and researchers and occasionally uh, managers mm -hmm. but i have decided <laughs> to stop with that <laughs> okay so in a couple of weeks i'll actually join another company so in the past six years i have and we can talk about how that company came about and it's yeah. it's probably related to it's related to everything of course but but uh, i just want to say that this is actually the very first time that i'm talking about this but I'm going to be a machine learning engineer. Okay. Two reasons why I decided to uh, to stop with uh, with my own company is that first of all, I, I really miss working with people, working with colleagues. Yeah. And secondly, I miss building things. So that's why I'm uh, I'm joining. Uh, well, January first, I'm joining uh, Xomnia, a consultancy uh, based in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Excellent. Well, that sounds that sounds really fun. I. Also run my own company and I'd really enjoy it, but I, I completely get what you're saying. It's sometimes it's nice to be with a team and you also, it makes you learn different skills or hone different skills to show up at oh, a yeah. client company where they've got, you know, a million requests and an hour trying to answer something with machine learning versus, you know, doing some research and talking about how to improve the shell, right? These are very, two very different jobs. And so it's, it's cool to, 
sort of mix mix up the career across those. Say again? It's great to mix up your career and do do some of both, oh, right? Because if all you yeah. did is work at a consultancy, you'd be like, I can't wait to start my own company and do something else. Right, right, right. And and you know, the company was just just happened. That's actually thanks to the book that I wrote a long time ago. I once it was done, the first edition that is in 2014, and we're talking about data science at the command line here. I was asked to give a workshop and uh, I'd never given a workshop before, but I was asked by a, uh, a games company in Barcelona to give a one day workshop. And I liked it. And I liked it so much that I started doing this more often. Yeah. So I decided to do this full time. So I didn't choose the, the company life, uh, or the, the startup life. <laughs> it Although you, you can't really think of it as a startup, but uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. These things the, the independent, the independent life. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, cool. All right, well, let's talk about the terminal. People on Windows might know it as the command prompt, although you, as I, would also recommend that people generally stay away from the command prompt, in at least for some of these tools. But we do have the Windows terminal, which is relatively new and much, much nicer, much, much closer to the way Mac... The PowerShell, you mean? Yeah. Well, there's the PowerShell, but then there's also a new Windows terminal application. And then it can even do things like bash into Windows subsystem for Linux, right? So if you wanted to right. use some of these tools, you could fire up Windows subsystem for Linux, and then you would literally have the same tool chain because it's just Ubuntu or something. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, I have, I'm familiar with uh, WSL, but I haven't tried out this new Windows. Yeah. The new Windows terminal is pretty nice. Well, let me see if I can pull it up for everybody. Windows terminal. But yeah, it's just in the, uh, the Windows 11 store, I guess you call it. I don't know. But it's it's yeah. a lot closer to a lot closer to the other tools. So if you're on Windows, <laughs> you owe it to yourself to not use cmd.exe, but get this <laughs> instead. So what I want to talk about just real quickly to set the stage is I just went through a period of, oh my computer has been the same setup for a couple of years. It's getting crufty. I'm gonna just format it not restore from some backup, but format it and reset up everything so it's completely fresh and, and like better because I really made some mistakes when I first set it up. Now it's better. But I open up the terminal and it's this tiny font, dreadful white background with white with black text and it has some old version of Bash. And so I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on like, what do you do to make your terminal better. <laughs> right. If, if you, you probably do something, you probably install some extras and other things to make your experience on the terminal nicer. Yeah. I'm guessing you're on Mac OS then? Yes. I, am. I do Mac OS and I do a Linux for the servers. And I think right. some combination thereof is pretty common for most of the listeners. So for Mac OS, the biggest gain you get when you install iTerm. Okay. A different terminal, right? The application right. that would launch your shell. The Mac iTerm OS 2. Term, yeah, the terminal emulator. I What do they call it? The Mac OS terminal replacement. There you go. Yeah, this is, I'd say, the most popular one on Mac OS. There are others, but yeah, that's what I start with. You mentioned the shell, which... Is it still Bash? Is that still the default one on macOS? Yeah, it's still Bash by default. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's an old version yeah, of Bash. Yeah. So yeah, there are other shells out there. The Z shell is quite popular, uh, largely yeah. compatible with Bash. I've heard good things about Fish. Yes, Fish is good. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually, it's not really um, POSIX compliant, as they say. So, so it's quite different from what you... Um, might get from Bash or the Z shell. 
But from what I've seen, the syntax, especially uh, looping, might appeal to the Python developer out there. It's closer to Python, but I haven't tried it myself. There's also the uh, conch shell. Is that how you say it? X-O-N dot. If you're, look, if you're willing to give up posits, right. then this is like literally Python in the shell. You can just type like import JSON and do a for loop, right? Yeah. The, the, I've never, I've not gone this far. I'm still, I'm on the Z shell side of things. I really like how that works. But if you really it's, wanted to, to embrace the sort of Python in the shell. Exactly. It's this trade-off of how far do you want to go? How much do you, do you want to deviate from what is then considered to be the default Right, because you mentioned you also work a lot on servers. Yeah. And there you're then presented with a completely different shell, perhaps, and, and set of tools. It's a trade-off. And also how much time do you really want to spend customizing this? Because um, yeah, our time is precious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And William out in the audience says for the for the Windows people, oh my posh, which oh how, have you done stuff with oh my posh? That's is also really nice. Oh, no. so I guess. Posh is for the oh no any shell so not just the PowerShell. Yes, this I think it came out of the PowerShell so the Posh part. I think it originally was for that, but I use this with Z Shell and Oh My ZSH together, and it's basically that controls my prompt and Z Oh My Z Shell is like all the plugins and you know complete your Git branches type of thing. But yeah, yeah, this this is really this is really pretty neat too. Works well for for Windows people. I'd say then indeed the the um, so if your terminal is one thing where you can get a lot of uh, benefit from uh, customizing your prompt so that it gives you a little bit more information and context of where you are or uh, what your state in which state your Git repo is in or which virtual environment you're working, mm -hmm. that can be helpful too. Because that yeah. is something that you lose easily when you're working at the command line is, is context. Right. I, I ran this command and it's not working because actually I forgot to activate the virtual environment so it doesn't have the dependencies or the environmental variables that I set up in that virtual environment, right? Exactly. Let me give one more shout out for one other thing while people right. are thinking about making their, their stuff uh, better is nerd fonts. I'm always <laughs> eager to learn these things. There is so much out there. So nerd fonts, if you're going to get like Oh My Posh and some of these other extensions that you want to make your shell better, so many of them depend on having what are called nerd fonts. Because if you look at, say, on the Oh My Posh page, there's like these right. arrows with gaps in them. You're like, what font could possibly have like a Git branch symbol and as these like connecting arrows that have colors interwoven and all that stuff is nerd fonts. So if you're going to try oh, to run nice. them, download and install one of these nerd fonts and then those will work. Otherwise they're like those, I don't understand Unicode square blocks, you know, like a, when emojis go bad. Oh, you still got to install individual fonts. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like you take Consolata or something or some other font and, and it's patched with these additional some uh, yeah characters. something like that yeah so but, it does you only need one but you have to set your terminal to one of these to make a choice set it to one of them and then it'll work but if you don't then it, you'll you'll end up with just like these these a lot of these extensions don't work this portion of talk pythonomy is brought to you by sentry how would you like to remove a little stress from your life do you worry that users may be encountering errors, slowdowns, or crashes with your app right now? Would you even know it until they sent you that support email? 
how much better would it be to have the error or performance details immediately sent to you, including the call stack and values of local variables and the active user recorded in the report? With Sentry, this is not only possible, it's simple. In fact, we use Sentry on all the TalkPython web properties. We've actually fixed a bug triggered by a user and had the upgrade ready to roll out as we got the support email. That was a great email to write back. Hey, we already saw your error and have already rolled out the fix. Imagine their surprise. Surprise and delight your users. Create your Sentry account at talkpython.fm slash Sentry. And if you sign up with the code TalkPython, all one word, it's good for two free months of Sentry's business plan, which will give you up to 20 times as many monthly events as well as other features. Create better software, delight your users, and support the podcast. Visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and use the coupon code TalkPython. Yeah, so when it comes to customizing your shell, then, if you still want to talk about that. Yeah, 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 I, let's keep going. Right. One of the uh, things I, I, I think everybody does most often is navigating around, so moving from one directory to another. And uh, it can be quite cumbersome to keep on retyping all these long and deeply nested yes. uh, directories. So there are a number of uh, solutions that can help with that. I use FASD. F-A-S-D. Okay. So that okay. it keeps track of what you've been visiting most often, most recently. So it also, I, I, I don't think if, I wonder if that one also allows you to set bookmarks. That's what I used to do. I would keep, uh, I would have this a set of custom shells, shells functions, which actually made, made it into a plugin about nine years ago into oh my Z shell. So if you, if you have oh my Z shell and the, the jump plugin is still in there, yeah. That's a. Uh, I see. Yep, yep. So you can just jump around. I see. Yeah, you would say you would say mark okay. mark this directory under this alias, although it's not really an alias, but it's like a bookmark. And then you say, right. okay, jump to this directory. So that really helps. Right. So maybe the source directory for talk Python, I would just mark it as TP, and I could say on the sh on the terminal, I could say J space. TP and it would take me this super long complex directory. Just bam, you're there, right? Exactly. So I like it. Okay, I might need to try this out. And it it comes with oh my Z shell. This one, no, this one it doesn't. It's it's a separate tool. Okay, I believe. Although it might even be a, a plugin. I, by now, I don't even know. It's been it's been a long <laughs> time since I installed it. But yeah, F A S D. That's what you want to look for. Okay, very very cool. I have uh, one that I use a lot called McFly. Have you, have you seen McFly? No. So it's similar. And what you do is, you know, if you type control R, it'll give you reverse incremental search or whatever that is. And I almost, so this overrides that. So if you type control R, it brings up an Emacs like autocomplete type thing that has fuzzy searching. So you could type SSH and then like part of a domain name and it would find you typed SSH, you know, root at some that, 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 that domain name. And it'll, it'll give you a list of like all these smart options looking through your history. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and even now, as we talk, I've learned like a dozen new things. One thing I have noticed though, is that, you know, you may, the next time you're installing, uh, you're setting up your system, you may feel very productive and, uh, and lead like, <laughs> right. When you're installing all these tools, but you still got to make use of them, right. You got to yeah. turn that into some kind of habit. And what I have noticed, uh, for me at least, what works best is to just take it one tool at a time, make a little uh, cheat sheet for yourself on a piece of paper, and just 
see if that if you like that tool, if you can, you know, if you get any benefit from it. Yeah, absolutely. So related to this, actually, is is the concept of aliases, right? In a more generic sense, in the pure shell sense, yes. in that you can define an alias that would then be expanded into some command with zero or more arguments. Yeah. So if you have if you have uh, commands that you would often type, like uh, ls for listing your uh, your files, and you have all these arguments that you don't want to keep on typing, then aliases is the way to go. I go crazy with aliases. I absolutely love this. Yeah, I have probably 100, 150 aliases in my RC file. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. So at some point, I what you well, what you may have done is go through through your history and then see how often you use these aliases. Yeah. That's always a fun thing to do. Yeah. It's, for me, it's kind of frustration. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. Or, you know, I've got to remember, I got to type, oh no, I got to go into this directory and then I got to first type this command and then I can do this other thing. So for example, we talked about the static site generator. So one of the things I have to do in order to create new content and see how it looks in the browser is I have to go to a certain directory, not where the content is, but a couple up, run hugo-d server mm-hmm. there, and then it'll auto-reload. And as I edit the markdown, it'll just refresh. So instead of always remembering how to find that directory and then go into the right sort of parent directory and run it, I just now I just type hugo-write, and that's an alias. And just, it does that. Boom. It just yeah. it just pops open and it's, okay, it's, it's running. I do my thing. I'm gonna, then I got to do a whole bunch of automation in Python on top of it and then build it and ship it to the Git and push it for a continuous uh, deployment. Now I have just Hugo publish, boom. And these are all like aliases. The other thing you talked about uh, single commands is maybe talk about chaining commands and multiple commands. Yeah, because you just mentioned automation in Python. And then I, of course, immediately go like, hmm, what's going on there? <laughs> I'm calling right on I, that. Yeah, so I've got a couple of, I guess they're Go commands because they're Hugo. And then I've got some Python code that generates a tag cloud and then a Git command that'll publish it. So it's like Hugo, Hugo, Git, no. Hugo Git, uh, Hugo Python, Hugo Git is is that all in one alias, right? Which is is beautiful. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, I don't know if we've exactly. I guess I opened a little bit talking about your book, but one of the really core ideas of your book is that the shell can be the integration environment across technologies, like Go, Python, and Git. Exactly, exactly. The command line doesn't care in what language something has been written. It's like a, uh, a super glue or, or duct tape, more really, <laughs> that binds everything together. Yeah. To absolutely. a certain extent, right? Like duct tape. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's a you know loosely bound, but it's there's a ton of flexibility in there. And if you think, well, I really just want to do these four things, maybe that would be a macro in Excel or some kind of like scripting replay in Windows. But this is it's on the terminal, programs can run it. You can run it. It's clearly editable. It's not some weird specific type of macro, right? You're like, I want to do these four things. I just type the thing and go. I'm sure yeah. many people know, but if you have multiple commands, you want to run one, then the other, you can just say ampersand, ampersand between them. And it'll say run yep. this first thing, then run the other. Those are independent. You can also pipe inputs and outputs between them, right? I see that. That's you, you've got some really interesting ways to do that multi-line stuff in your book as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it depends on what kind of tools you want to combine, right? So you you just mentioned a double ampersand. So that should be used when you only want to run the second command when the first one has uh, succeeded, right? If you want to run the second one regardless of what the first one did. You can just use a, a semicolon 
Or if you only want to run the second command when the first one failed, there might be a situation where you want to do that. You can use double pipe. So for okay. or. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And then, yeah, and then you just uh, mentioned uh, piping. Mm -hmm. And that's, well, a whole nother story. That's when you want to use the output from the first command as input to the second command. And this is where our data, again, uh, comes into play. And this is, so you just also mentioned macros, right? Uh, another way to, to think of them are, are functions right. that you then combine. Yeah, incredibly powerful. But that goes a little bit beyond, then of course you should be working with commands that produce some text that you want to then further uh, work on. Yeah. You also talk about creating bash scripts, which is pretty interesting. I think many people probably know about that or shell scripts, .sh files. I guess it could be Z shell scripts as well. Yep. So you gave an interesting presentation back at the Strata conference. And uh, it's uh, you had a lot of fun ideas that I think are relevant here. So maybe let me just throw out some one-liners and you could maybe riff on that a little bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So one of the reasons you said you gave 50 reasons that the shell was awesome. And I want to just point out a, a couple, highlight a couple, let you speak to them. So you said the shell is like a REPL that lets you just play with your data. We know the REPL from Python and also from Jupyter, but I never really thought of the shell as a REPL, but it kind of is, right? Yeah, I think that the shell is the, is the mother of all REPLs, <laughs> the read, <laughs> eval, print loop, Yep. right? Having this short feedback loop of doing things and seeing output and then elaborating on that. I think that is tremendously valuable. And Python users, of course, uh, may recognize this uh, from Python itself, right? right? If you just execute Python, you get a REPL, <laughs> IPython or, or Jupyter console. And to a certain extent, also Jupyter Notebook or Jupyter Lab is, there are some similarities there where you, again, have this quick feedback loop. And it's a very different experience from, you know, writing a script from top to bottom or starting at the top and then executing that script from the start uh, every time you want to test something. So yeah, it's a different work, different way of working. And uh, I'm not saying one is better than the other, but what I do want to say is that there are situations where having such a tight feedback loop can be very efficient. Yeah. Especially in the exploration stage, right? Yeah. Exactly. Once you go to production, right? Once you, whatever that means, right? Once you want things to be a bit more stable, you don't want to just uh, use duct tape, but you want to use a proper uh, <laughs> construction, <Yes. laughs> then, then yeah, then of course the command line can, can have different roles there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of the, the, the rad GUI, the rapid application development GUI, but for data exploration, right? The, these REPLs, and you know, that's that's partly why Jupyter is so popular. It just lets you play and see and then try, and it just that that quick feedback loop is amazing. Another reason you said it's awesome, close to the file system. Yeah, I mean, in the end, it's all files, <laughs> right? Whether you're producing code that lives somewhere, it's in a file, or whether you're working with images or log files that, are, that get written to something, or you have some configuration. It's all files. And we got to do things with these files. We have to move them around. We have to rename them, delete them, put them into Git. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you want to be close to your file system. You don't want to be importing a whole bunch of libraries before you can start doing things with these files. Also, uh, when you're doing data science, often it starts with this kind of ingest and understanding files, right? CSV or text or others. Yeah. 
I mean, I sometimes try to immediately do uh, read CSV in Pandas, <laughs> but then, you know, very often I get presented, I get some Unicode error, or it, it turns out it's uh, the comma is not the, the file, uh, is not the uh, delimiter being used. And yeah, you can do that in a sort of uh, trial and error way. You can fix that, but it really helps to just being able to look at a file as it is, no parsing, just boom, there's my file. And then, yep, once you're comfortable, once you're you're confident, like, okay, this is what my file looks like. This is its structure. Then, of course, you can always move on to using some other uh, package like Pandas. Okay. Another one that you've said, another recommendation you had or uh, sort of way for playing with this was to use Docker. I don't know how many people out there who haven't done this before are really familiar, but basically when you start up a Docker image, you might say dash IT bash or ZSH. And what you get is just, you get a basic shell inside the Docker container. But in that space, then you can kind of go crazy and do whatever you want to the shell and try it out, right? Exactly, yeah. So there are two scenarios that I can think of. So when you're just starting out with the command line, it's a very intimidating environment and it's quite easy to wreck your system if you're not careful. So <laughs> being inside an isolated environment that is sort of shielded of your host operating system can be comforting. So that's one recommendation that I would say that um, why I think you should use Docker. And the other one is uh, reproducibility. Also in Python, right, we're dealing with, uh, with packages that get updated, that get different version numbers where, fun where APIs change and, uh, you know, being able to reproduce a certain environment so that you get consistent results is also very, uh, very valuable. Yeah. And I'd like to sort of highlight the converse as well. You said playing with Docker containers is a cool way to experiment with the shell. If you care about Docker containers, you need to know the shell to do things to it. Because you might think, oh, well, I'm just going to make a Docker file. I don't need to know the shell. Like what goes in the Docker file? A whole bunch of commands that many of them look like exactly what you would run on the shell. You just put it in a certain location or as a command argument to some configuration thing in there. And so you really, if you're going to do things with containers, the way you speak to them is mostly through shell-like commands. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Starting a business is hard. By some estimates, over 90% of startups will go out of business in just their first year. With that in mind, Microsoft for Startups set out to understand what startups need to be successful and to create a digital platform to help them overcome those challenges. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub was born. Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources to solve their startup challenges. The platform provides technology benefits, access to expert guidance and skilled resources, mentorship and networking connections, and much more. Unlike others in the industry, Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub doesn't require startups to be investor-backed or third-party validated to participate. Founders Hub is truly open to all. So what do you get if you join them? You speed up your development with free access to GitHub and Microsoft Cloud Computing Resources and the ability to unlock more credits over time. To help your startup innovate, Founders Hub is partnering with innovative companies like OpenAI, a global leader in AI research and development, to provide exclusive benefits and discounts. Through Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, becoming a founder is no longer about who you know. 
you'll have access to their mentorship network, giving you a pool of hundreds of mentors across a range of disciplines and areas like idea validation, fundraising, management and coaching, sales and marketing, as well as specific technical stress points. You'll be able to book a one-on-one meeting with the mentors, many of whom are former founders themselves. Make your idea a reality today with the critical support you'll get from Founders Hub. To join the program, just visit talkpython.fm slash foundershub, all one word. The link's in your show notes. Thank you to Microsoft for supporting the show. So one of the cool uh, tools that you had in that presentation was you talked about explainshell.com. Yeah. What is this? Well, you can try out. So what we see here on the screen is, is explainshell.com. And it will break down a long command and uh, start explaining. So it will, it will, what I think the authors have done is uh, they have used all these manual pages and extracted bits and pieces that they then present to you in, a, in an order that corresponds to the command that you're pasting into this. So if you see, you know, on Stack Overflow, you see this, uh, this incantation and you're like, <laughs> all right, what does it mean? And, and you don't want to go through the manual page yourself. Right. Okay. So what's, what does dash F mean? What is this X Z V F for the tar command mean? Then explain shell can do this trick for you. Yeah. It's amazing. When I first thought, I thought, okay, well, this, what this is going to be is this is going to be like the man page. So if you type LS, it'll show you a simple list directory contents and you click on it, it'll give you additional arguments you can pass. But right. you could then say, like you said, you could say dash L and it'll say the LS means list contents. The L means use the long listing format. You're like, oh, okay, hold on. What if I said get, get checkout main and it'll say, okay, well, get checkout does this. And then main, it'll actually parse it apart. And there's some really wild examples on here that like right on the page that are highlighted on the homepage of that site, you click it and boom, it gives you this cool graph of like, what the heck? It even shows like the ampersand, the double ampersand and the double or combining, as you mentioned before. Yeah. This is amazing. It is, it is. It's really useful, uh, especially when you're just, you know, getting started with the command line and you're overwhelmed, like we all are in the beginning and sometimes still are, then, uh, you know, adding, adding some context like this really helps. I once wrote a, a utility that allowed you to use explainshell.com from the command line. So you would just, um, you wouldn't leave the command line. I don't think it works any longer, but um, yeah, that was a fun exercise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very neat. One of the things that I learned was parallel. Oh yeah. So tell us about parallel. Like this is a command you can run on the terminal. And it sounds like it does stuff in parallel. That sounds amazing. Yep, yep. Like the name (laughs) implies, Parallel is a tool. And we're talking about GNU Parallel here. There's another version out there that is similar, but different. GNU Parallel, this tool that doesn't doesn't do anything by itself, but it multiplies. It's a force multiplier for all the other tools. So what this tool is able to do, it will parallelize your pipeline. It will be able to run jobs on multiple cores and even distribute them to other machines if you have those available right so michael you mentioned you're you're working on on a server well if you can ssh in the, if that if you can ssh into other servers as well you can leverage those that's something right. that right. new parallel can do the way it works is that you feed it a list of something could be a list of file names could be a list of urls could be your log files if you can then 
think of your the problem that you want to solve. If you can break it down into smaller chunks, then GNU Parallel might be able to help you out there. So yeah. these these jobs should be working independently from each other. Yeah, there can be yeah, it's nearly impossible to have those two uh, uh, jobs communicate with each other. But let's say you have for your blog, right? In Hugo, you have a, a whole bunch of ping files that you want to convert to uh, to JPEGs. WebP or something, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a bad example because this particular tool that I would then use already supports uh, doing multiple files, but let's just assume that this tool can only handle one file at a time, yeah? Then you would specify your command and then at certain places where necessary, use placeholders. Like, yeah. So, okay, this is where the file name goes. And this is the file where the file name goes with a new extension. So it's one of my favorite tools, really. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, for example, if you had a bunch of web pages and you wanted to compute the sentiment analysis, right? As a, a data scientist, mm-hmm. right? You want to download it, compute the sentiment analysis, and then save that to a, a CSV or pin it to a CSV. Yeah. You know, maybe and- somebody gave you that script and it's only written to talk to one thing, and you don't want to rewrite it or touch it or, or get involved with it. Right? This could. This is your your way to unlock. The parallelism there, yeah. right? In fact, let's talk a little bit more about this because I think it, this is an important point in that I'm sure that we've all come across uh, when we're working in Python and you're thinking like, okay, I can speed this up. I want to do things in parallel. You know what? I'm going to do multi-threading or what is it that you use these days in Python? Yeah, async and await maybe if it's uh, IO yeah. bound or something like that. Yeah, You've got your pool of workers or I don't know. Basically, you're programming it yourself from the ground up. Right, multi-processing potentially. Probably be the closest. Right, yeah. right, right, right. The trick then is to realize that there is already a tool out there that can do that for you. All that you need to do is make sure that your Python code becomes a command line tool. Yeah. And we can talk a little bit more about that, but there are just five, six steps needed to make that happen. Once you realize that, then you can start turning existing Python code into command line tools and you know start combining it with, with all the other tools that are already available, in, including Parallel. Yeah, it's awesome. I think it's it's a really cool idea because you know, maybe the person working with the code doesn't understand multiprocessing and thread synchronization and all these these tricky concepts. Like, just right, just give me the thing that does it once with command line arguments, and and I got it. You know, like you or you you picked it up from somewhere. Out in the audience, the question is: Is there a gill associated with this? And I mean, technically, yes, but it's not interfering with the computation because it's multiple processes. It's not threads yeah. within a process, right? So it should be able to just run take advantage of all your course. Yeah. yeah. There will be one gill per Python process, right? Yep, that's right. And so it doesn't matter because if you say there's five jobs, you have five processes, right? There's no contention there. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Oh, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about this idea of turning Python scripts into command line tools. Yeah. I think that that's really valuable for people. It is. And um, we can then put it in the show notes. I might have already given a talk about this. I'm actually not sure if it's uh, if it's uh, publicly available. Anyway, there are only a couple of steps and it's not that difficult. So first of all, let's assume that you have some Python code out there. Yeah. You have it in a file. And uh, let's just, uh, for simplicity's sake, assume it's a single file, right? So what would you then need to do to turn this into a command line tool, something that can be run on the command line? So the, the way that you can currently run this is by saying, okay, Python, and then the name of the file, right? That doesn't really right. sound like it's a, it's a command line tool. So, so the very first thing here then is to 
add one line at the very top that would then start with a hash and an exclamation mark or a hash bang or a shebang as it's called. These are two special characters and um, they instruct the shell this can be executed. What is the binary that's going to do the executing? Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what then would come after that. So you would have hash bang and then the, the it would point to the Python executable. Yeah, right. There's some details there. It could be a certain version. It could be out of a virtual environment, potentially. Like it could go wherever, right? You don't want to overcomplicate it probably, but like you could point to, you could point to different versions of Python. You could point, because yes. you, you give it a full path to the executable. Exactly, exactly. There's some, there, there's some compatibility issues there, but essentially is you tell your shell, okay, which program should interpret my code. Mm-hmm. And that is some Python out there that you have installed. So th- th- that's the first step. Then, after you've done this, you no longer need to type Python anymore because the file itself contains which executable should be should be run. But then you'll notice that you don't have the necessary permissions. <laughs> what you need to do is you need to enable the execution bit. This would give you, as the user, permission to actually execute this file. You do that, of course, with a command line tool. It's called Shemod. C-H-M-O-D for change mode, and then U plus X, the name of the file, right? These details are, if you're really interested, one place where you can find them is in chapter four of my book, Data Science at the Command Line, which you can read for free. Okay, but let's say that you've uh, enabled these uh, the execution bit. Now you, can, um, now you can run it. You would still need to type period and a slash because this file is presumably not yet on your search path. So your search path is a is a, a list of directories where your shell will be looking for the executable that you want to run. Where is your tool located? Well, it should be somewhere on the search path. So either you add another path path to the search path, or you move the tool to one of the existing directories out there. That's about it for making your code executable. But then you probably want to change one or two things about the code itself. Yeah, so one thing to do is look for any hard-coded values that you actually want to be want to make dynamic, right? These should be turned into command line arguments. And actually, you can take that one step further. If one portion of your file is doing something that can be done by another command line tool, then consider removing that. For example, downloading a file, yeah? There, there, there is, of course, a tool for that on the command line. Why would you then write this yourself? Of course, there's a time and a place for that. But let's say, okay, a, a very um, <laughs> contrived example is, is a, a Python program that would count words. Yeah. Right. Right. If your code has some hard-coded website, yeah, I mean, why? You would make your tool more generic by getting rid of that hard-coded URL and, well, turn it into a command line argument. Okay, which website would you like to download? Or to go one step further is to think, okay, you know what? I don't really care where the text is coming from. I just want to count words. Give me text somehow. Yeah. Sorry? Just give me the text. Don't tell me the URL. Yeah. So your tool should then be reading from standard input, which is a special channel from which you can receive data. And this is also where the piping would come in. Yeah. So you would first use a tool that would get this text, right? Maybe it's some log file. So you want to count your errors or it's another website and you want to do stuff to that. <laughs> it doesn't really matter, but um, you would then, that would write to its standard output. Yeah. And you would combine 
the standard output from the first tool with your standard input using the pipe operator. So that's then basically it for, I mean, of course, if you want to take this further, you can think about, you know, adding some help, some nice looking help. Yeah. Think about the arguments themselves. Do you want to use short options or long options? Exactly. Right. Uh, so something like Typer or Click or, or one of these formal yes. CLI frameworks. Yeah. You probably really... Python, of course, uh, has arc parse, but there are packages out there that can really help you build beautiful command line tools. Typer is one of them. I'm currently using Click. Also, yep. Click yep. in combination with uh, Rich. Mm -hmm. So, of course, uh, the author of Rich uh, was on the show uh, a couple of episodes ago. Yeah, Will McGugan. Very good yep. stuff. Um, why, why we're talking about that, you know, the other thing that's really pretty interesting is the Rich CLI. Have you played with Rich CLI? Which, oh, oh yeah. Okay, so it's a, that's indeed a command line tool in itself that can do a whole bunch of things. Yeah, you want to tell us something about uh, that? You know, I haven't done much with it, but you can do things like if you install the Rich CLI, then you can say things, there's lots of ways to install it. You could say like rich and then a Python file or a JavaScript file or a JSON file, and it'll give you pretty printed color, you know, syntax highlighted printout. You can say rich some CSV file, and it'll give you a formatted table inside your terminal with colors and everything of, of it. It understands markdown and it like renders markdown. And yeah. there's, there's all sorts. So if you're kind of exploring files and you're happy with Python things and like installing the rich CLI is a, a pretty neat way to go as well. Yeah, it's a nifty tool, but just not to get confused. So this tool is provided by Rich and it uses Rich to produce, you know, <laughs> nice looking output. But just imagine that you can write your own command line tools yes. that would also produce this nice looking output. And for that, you can then use this package called Rich right. in combination perhaps with things like Typer or Click. And uh, DocOpt is another way you can go there. There are so many tools out there. Yeah, there absolutely are. One other thing I would like to point out that, so this taking the script and making it executable and put it in the path, that's kind of a, it's a great way to take scripts that you have and make them CLI commands for you. If you want to like formalize this a little bit more, I recently ran across this project called the Twitter Archive Parser. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of turmoil at Twitter. And so what you can do is you can mm -hmm. go to Twitter and download your entire history of like thousands of tweets or whatever as yep. HTML file and some JSON files, and you can save them for yourself. But the content of like all of the links are the shortened two.co Twitter short links. And if Twitter were to go away, you'd have no idea what any of your links you've ever mentioned ever were. And also the images that you get are the low res images and you can get the high res images if you know how to download them. So this guy, Tim Hutton, created this really cool utility that you can down, you can take that downloaded archive and upgrade it to standalone with high res images and full resolved links, not shortened links. Pretty cool, right? But if you look at the, uh, the way to, like, how do you use it? Okay, where does it say this? Not sure where it is. Yeah, so how do I use it? I download my Twitter archive and unzip it, fine. And then I download the Python file to the working directory. And then I go in there and I type Python that file. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be better if I could just, you know, it has dependencies it has to install in order for it to run. Wouldn't it be better if I could just use this as a command? So what I did is I forked this and I said, I'm going to add a pyproject.toml to turn this into a package. And then under the pyproject.toml, you say project.scripts 
Twitter archive markdown, Twitter archive images, and you you map into your package and then functions that you want to call. And then once you pip install this, these commands become just CLI commands. And it doesn't matter how that happened, long as your Python packages are in the path, which they generally have to be anyway, because you want to do things like PyTest and Black, then if you just pip install this project, it, it adopts all these commands here, which is pretty cool. Nice. Is it then necessary yeah. to add this bin directory once to your search path? Because it lives, it would live somewhere under site packages, right? Yes, exactly. And so if you have a, a Python installation and you try to pip install something, you'll get a warning that the site packages are not in the path. So you do have to do that. And then go one further, you could do pip x. I don't know if you played with pip x. Oh, yeah. Pip x is awesome. So it'll generate the package environments and install the dependencies in an isolated environment. And it'll set up the path if you just say intro path. Then so if you pip x install the thing with the the commands in it, those automatically get managed and upgraded by pipx as just part of your CLI, which like that's a perfect chain of like a form, but you've got to have a formal package and like a place to install it from like Git or PyPI or whatever. But it's still, it's still a, a like a neat pro level type of thing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You can take this pretty far, <laughs> make it really professional. And before you know it, you start maintaining it for. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Why am I doing PRs on this silly thing? I don't know. Yeah. But just to clarify, if you say for a one-off or a two-off, you want to make something that is reproducible, right? So a reusable command line tool, not reproducible, reusable. You don't really need any other packages. You can use uh, sys.argv, right? You, you import sys and then you have your sys.argv. I do that. I do that a fair amount of times. It's, yeah. It's only for me. I've created an alias, so it always gets the right argument. There's like, there's no ambiguity. Sysargv bracket one, let's go. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We've talked a lot about sort of around all the cool things we can do with a command line, but in your book, you actually talked about a bunch of surprising tools. So, like one of the things you talked about is uh, obtaining data, and you hinted at this before. Like you can just use curl for downloading those kinds of things. But if you get a little bit farther, like under scrubbing data, you talk about grek rep and awk that a lot of people maybe know. But then if we go a tad further over to say exploring data, then all of a sudden you can type things like head of some CSV file and it kind of does the same thing as Jupyter. Or there's things like CSV cut and SQL CSV, CSV SQL. Talk about some of these maybe more direct data science tools that people can use. Right. So let's see then where to begin. You mentioned a couple of tools, right? The head and awk and grep. Those are, you know, I would consider them the classic command line yeah, tools, right? I would Part too, of yeah. Or utils, GNU core utils, right? You can, if you, if you're, uh, if you have a fresh install, then you can expect those tools to be present. Yeah. If you're not on windows. So those tools, they operate on text, on plain text, and they have no notion of any other structure that might be present in this data, say CSV for when you have some rectangular structure or JSON when you can have a potentially deeply nested data mm -hmm. structure. These tools know nothing about that. That doesn't make them entirely useless, right? There are ways to work around them, around that, that issue, but there are nowadays plenty of tools available that are able to work with this structure. Right. And um, one of them is a is actually a suite of tools. It's called CSV Kit, and uh, you can install it as a 
Python package okay. through pip, which of course we do at the command line. The CSV kit, you say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh -huh. And uh, then you, you get a, a whole bunch of tools that understand that lines are rows. The first line is a header and the, all these fields are delimited by default by, with a, by a comma. And then you can do things like uh, uh, extract columns or sort a file according to a certain column. Yeah. So this is more difficult for when you're working with core data utils. And of course, all of these, these things you can do in Pandas. And it might even be faster in Pandas as opposed to these CSV tools, not as opposed to the, uh, the classic command line tools. But... Um, I mean, in order to get started with pandas, right? Just this, imagine that you're you're given this file, you know, you're uh, by your colleague, and you're asked to quickly uh, sum things together. Right? In order to just get started with pandas, what are the, then the things that you need to do? Yeah, fire up Jupyter Lab, import pandas, and maybe a bunch of other things. There is, um, of course, also a time and a place for that. Definitely. Definitely. I always use the tool that gets the job done. Don't get me wrong here, but it's just so incredibly powerful to just, if you if it solves the job, to just whip up a command on the command line uh, using uh, a couple of, of tools there. If you're going that route, then CSV Kit is not the only suite of tools that you should know about. Uh, XSV written in Rust, but yet you shouldn't care about that because the command line doesn't care. It's uh, generally faster. One thing that CSV Kit can do, uh, by the way, and I'm actually kind of proud that I have been able to contribute that tool to the suite of tools, is uh, CSV SQL, and it allows you to um, yeah run a, a SQL query directly on the CSV file. Yeah, so if you are familiar with uh, with uh, SQL then uh, you can leverage that knowledge directly at the command line without first having to create a new database and import that CSV file in there and so forth. All right. So one of the things you can do on the command line is basically just give it, like, here's a SQLite file database, and now go insert all the things from the CSV file into it. Uh, here in this example, it has this create table statement. Does it figure that out from the CSV, or do you need to write that? It figures it out. Yeah, it does some... Um, it looks at the first, say, a thousand rows and then figure out like, okay, this is a number, this is text. I see. Yeah. Oh, cool. But I was actually talking about the other tool and that's SQL to CSV. I always mix those up. The reverse, yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. This one. And there, it still uses SQLite under the hood, but you don't need to worry about that. It takes care of, the, of all that boilerplate for you. You just say, okay, you know, select these columns from standard input, order them by this column. This is the file, or, or, or I've piped. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe you've got like some production database and you want to filter out, I just need this table with this particular query, right? It's just like, I only want to focus on my region of this data. Give it to me as a CSV file. And then you can go work on it all you want. You don't have to be connected to the database or near it or any of those things, right? Potentially, if it doesn't have any sensitive data, you could share that, right? You would never share the connection string to your database. That'd be insane. Yep. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So what are some of the other tools? Well, if we go back, uh, if I go back to the CSV kit, you can see there's some of these you talked about. There's N2 CSV. That one takes an Excel, XSL or XSLX and converts it to a CSV just on the command prompt or the terminal, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Yeah. Okay. Also, I should point out that I'm not the uh, the author of CSV Kit, right? I just contributed a yeah, very yeah. small portion to it <laughs> because of the ingredients that were already there. Still proud of it, though. But it's being created by my many other uh, people. Uh, sure, of course. Some other things it has is like um, CSV Stat and CSV Grep. Yeah, a lot of a lot of cool command line options to point at these things, right? Mm-hmm. Let's see. I pulled out uh, some others. Rush. So one of the areas, <laughs> the, the the graph, the basically plotting. Two two. We were basically out of time, but I want to I want to talk about two things really quick. Right. Uh, the on some of this. Which chapter did you put it under where you have the the pictures? Oops. Uh, seven. Uh, so seven visualizing exploring data and then yeah here we uh, go so if you so tell us a little bit about this like you can plot stuff in your terminal yeah yeah it's kind of (laughs) crazy i should say that rush is a proof of concept right it's one of those projects that have a lot of potential but don't necessarily have enough users and i don't necessarily have enough time to maintain it properly but it does uh, prove the concept Rush, the name, I mean, it's for when you're in a rush. It's R on the shell. And um, what it does, it it leverages R under the hood. And uh, for plotting, it leverages a particular R package, uh, ggplot2, which is the data visualization package for when you're working with R. Yeah, kind of the the sibling uh, where matplotlib is a little bit derived from that, I believe, right? Well, well, well. Now you're mentioning that actually matplotlib is very different. It's uh, matplotlib is very low level and gives you a lot of flexibility, but also requires a lot of work. Now, if you're if you want to visualize data in Python in a similar way that ggplot uses, then I can recommend Plotmine. So that's a Python package that is uh, modeled after ggplot2's API. But um, that was a little bit a little segue there. Now, somebody else created a backend for ggplot that allows you to create visualizations on the command line. What I then did was create this interface. So something that would translate arguments and their values to the appropriate function call and also does a lot of boilerplate when it comes to reading in the CSV file that you provide, right? If you were to do this in R itself, it would require, let's say, about five lines of code in order to get started, right? You, and then the, the same holds for Python, right? So similar concept, right? Um, uh-huh. Import the appropriate packages or modules, reading in some file, and there's all this setup. And you know, again, that is probably what you want when you want things to be a little bit more robust, but when you want to get th- stuff done quickly, yeah, it really helps to be able to do that as a one-liner on a command line. And this is where Rush would then come in. So I make use of all this, yeah, elaborate machinery, you know, in R <laughs> just to uh, use that at the command line. It's so like a, a beautiful little wrapper around this complex thing, but like it really hides, hides the compla- complexity, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you can do beautiful like bar plots, there's a lot of neat stuff in here. I really like this. It is really nice. And um, now that I see this again, I get excited again. There is definitely potential there. But, you know, it's, it's again, yet another open source project that has to be uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> maintained. And 
unfortunately, my time is limited, like uh, like everybody else's. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. All right. The last last thing we have time for is this polyglot data science. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah. So polyglot data science is the idea that in order to get things done, you might need to use multiple tools, multiple languages, really. And uh, throughout the book, up until then, up until that chapter, we have mainly been focusing on using other languages from the command line. But this chapter considers the other way around, right? Using the command line from another language. So there might have been a situation where you're working in Python and then uh, all of a sudden like, ah, oh, now I got to do this this regular expression or I got to do some globbing and uh, or I got to call, I have to call this this other tool that is not written in Python, but can be called from the command line, right? You would maybe use subprocess, mm-hmm. the subprocess module for that. These are situations where you want to leverage the command line, where you want to break out of Python and do parts of your computation on the command line. And in that chapter, chapter 10, I demonstrate this not only for Python itself, but also in other languages and tools, including Jupyter Lab, where you can pass around, uh, say, a variable as standard input or and also retrieve the output then so that you can continue working in Python again with the, with the output. So, And uh, what is still very interesting to me is that even new languages and tools somehow still offer a way to leverage the command line. So Spark, Apache Spark, has a pipe method where you can pass an entire data set, right, an RDD, through a command line tool. And that I think that is just, um, it is, maybe it was just a, a fun little hack what the authors did, I don't know. I try to to view it as a, as a compliment, like, okay, some sometimes we just need to go back to the basics and, yeah. and use the command line because once you're there, you're back in this environment where you can use everything else. So All right. everything we've spoken about so far is now accessible as a command, be it Go exactly. or Python or your own script or whatever. Exactly. So let's say you've written this, you, you, you've come across this really nice tool, but it's written in Ruby. Oh no, what you're going <laughs> to, what are you going to do? <laughs> are you, are you going to? All of a sudden, become you know uh, involved into Ruby. No, assuming that this tool can be used from the command line, you can of course relax, just use the sub process module, and still you incorporate that Ruby tool into your own script. That's the idea. Yeah, I do want to maybe point out just really quickly here. Like this has got a little bit of a a little Bobby Tables warning asterisk by it. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Right. So for example, one of the things that's awesome here is I could run Jupyter console, as you show, and then if you say exclamation mark command, that pumps it straight to the shell. So you could say bang date, and it would tell you the date. You could say bang pip install dash dash upgrade request, and that'll go and execute that command. Don't do that with user input, <laughs> right? Who knows what they're going to send you. You can also do Def- that within Jupyter notebooks, you point out, right? So mm-hmm. you can do, um, what is it, percent percent bash? And then some interesting, complicated thing there, right? That's, that's pretty <laughs> well, Yeah, yeah, that's indeed the, uh, the magic uh, command that you can use in, uh, in Jupyter Notebook right. uh, and to then, interpret the entire cell as bash. Yeah, and so then you take what's left of that and then you head over to explain shell and figure out what the heck it means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe do that before you run it, yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. And then uh, also in, in Python, using 
subprocess is something that I've mm-hmm. done several times. I need to automate generating some big import of, say, 150 video files across a bunch of directories to build a course that we're going to offer. Well, into the database, I have to put how long is each one of those. I have no idea how to get the duration out of an MP4 <laughs> or MOV mm-hmm. file. But you know what? There's a really cool command line program I can run, it'll tell me. So I just use subprocess and call that, and then I can script out the rest in Python. And it's, you know, subprocess is not to be underestimated, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, at a certain point, shell scripts can get a little bit too hairy to work with. Being able to automate your things and use Python as your super glue, right? So a little bit stronger than duct tape, I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We talked at the beginning about how you're in this exploration stage and you just want to just run a bunch of stuff on the command line and figure it out. But when you go to production and you said, whatever that means, like this could be one of one thing that it means. We're going to write formal Python code and then use subprocess to kind of bring in some of this functionality potentially. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the command line is by definition very ad hoc in nature. Still, if you're doing things in production, meaning you're interacting with with other environments, with with uh, servers, or you have some kind of continuous integration going on, there are these places. These are places where the command line keeps popping up. Yeah. Right. So even there, so it it is useful to at least be comfortable with this uh, stark and unforgiving environment. <laughs> I think it's really excellent. I think there's a lot of cool stuff that we talked about. I think there's a lot of lot of value for people to learn this. I guess, you know, maybe we close this out with just one comment that I remember from your Strata presentation. You said the command line is like wine. <laughs> maybe it takes a while to appreciate, but it gets better with age. I, I certainly, my first experience was like, okay, I'm going to go from Windows and Mac dev development over to setting up and running servers over SSH. It was like, I am beyond lost. <laughs> I have no idea even like just how to get started right many years ago. And and now it's like, well, of course, that's a beautiful way. And it just, you slowly build up these these skills and it's it's really lovely. Yeah, it is. No, it took me a long time to get comfortable with the command line actually, or Linux in a more generic sense. I yeah. For the longest time, I was running Windows and Linux in a, in a, in a dual boot machine. And so <laughs> I, I just couldn't make the jump. And this was uh, uh, over 10 years ago. But uh, no, it didn't, definitely didn't come overnight. And I wasn't born with it. So I also believe that everybody is able to, uh, to embrace uh, the command line, if you will. But you just got to, you know, make yourself a little bit comfortable there as well. We talked about that in the beginning, right? The right terminal, the right aliases can get you a long way. Uh, they get you so far. And tools like oh my Z Shell and some of these others, the fast that will help you remember the thing you needed to type or or like you said aliases and kind of bring it all together and like ah, I know I did that thing let me just do a quick search for yeah there it is five you know five weeks ago I ran this and that's how I this is how I restart the web server oh yeah now I remember <laughs> yeah 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 I can talk about this all night I think we're probably out of time though let me ask you the final two questions before you get out of here you're gonna do some editing or write some code, what editor do you choose these days? I am torn between Visual Studio Code, Doom Emacs, and NeoVim. <laughs> and I, but <laughs> wherever I am in these editors, I always have my Vim key bindings set up. So it kind of depends on the project. But yeah, as long as I have my Vim key bindings, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
And then Notable, uh, normally I ask Notable PyPI project or, or library, but maybe broaden a little bit. Like if you could recommend one tool, one library people could install for the command prompt of the shell, what would you say? One tool or one command line tool for that they could install on the shell. Just something, it doesn't have to be the most popular. Something like people, if I ran across this, it was delightful. People should know about X. Yeah, GNU Parallel. Let's do it. Let's, uh, yeah. yeah, we talked about it. So it doesn't require any further ex- explanation. It's the tool that, that you know, makes every other tool way cooler. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. yeah, if you have that one in your arsenal, you can become very powerful. That's a good, re- <laughs> good recommendation. All right. Well, final call to action. People are excited about this. They want to learn more about it. What do you tell them? Yeah. A couple of things they can do. So my book, Data Science at the Command Line, is freely available. Yeah. So the second edition came out a year ago. You can read it for free on datascienceatthecommandline.com. I also offer a cohort-based course that I do twice a year. The next cohort is coming up in April. And this is... um, yeah, there we we have six live sessions, and then I will uh, I help you know a group of researchers and developers you know embracing the command line. It's a a, a very different experience than uh, reading a book. If you want to know more about that, then also data science at commandline.com uh, has a link to that. Apart from that, yeah, I mean if you just follow Hacker News, you'll come across now that you're aware of the of all these tools, you'll come across quite a lot of tools every now and then. There's not a week in which there's not a tool uh, being mentioned. There are tools being developed every day, uh, even though it's, uh, you know, the technology is over 50 years old, it's impossible to keep up. It's only getting cooler. It is only getting cooler. Yeah. Definitely. So yeah, that's my uh, my recommendation there. All right. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being here. It's been great. Congrats on the, thank you. the, the book and putting all this together. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you bet. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm Sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code TALKPYTHON, all one word. Starting a business is hard. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources and connections to solve startup challenges. Apply for free today at talkpython.fm slash founders hub. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.